Yeah, welcome. Uh, for those who are visiting us for, for the first time, welcome. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hello to those online. Hey, Dad, if you're watching, I love you. You're most amazing, and thanks for choosing me to be your son. And uh, hello to those on the patio enjoying this beautiful day. Oh, it's so nice. Uh, Jen, thanks for sharing your word. Um, you know, we, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, meaning that all of us have connections with God. And when we come together, each of us should have a hymn, a lesson, a song to be able to share with the body, to encourage one another, strengthen one another. So if you, when you come and prepare yourselves to, to meet together, prepare and ask the Lord, hey, is there something you want me to share with the rest of the body? And when you do come, we typically have an elder uh, that has a microphone, the ones who are leading to help kind of keep things in order uh, and to present to them, hey, what is it we want to share? And it may be for the body or it just may be for you, but just be willing to be open uh, to the Lord has because uh, it's just an incredible thing. You have the household of faith, all of our different experiences and how God interacts with each one of us. Uh, we miss out on a lot if we're not sharing uh, the things that God is doing in each one of us. So... Uh, if you are a father or serve in a role as a father figure, could you please stand up and remain standing? So you men, you men occupy a very crucial role in the lives of your children. And as the household of faith, you just heard, we honor you today. Scripture does have a charge for you as you live out your life before your children, to demonstrate the word of God as you depend upon him daily, to live out the word of God in your lives. And in so doing, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There's a beautiful blessing in Scripture I'd like to read over you and bless you. That the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So thank you, gentlemen. Well done. Keep fighting. Keep fighting for the king and for his kingdom. You guys can take a seat. Thank you much. Here they are. I see them. I'd like to introduce, for the first time, the West Side, Abel and Ivory Rivera. If you guys can stand. <laughs> good. Thanks, guys. Welcome. See, I made you blush, Ivory. That's good. <laughs> uh, if, uh, I'm trying to see if we see anyone else. Okay. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, today, we are taking a journey through the Book of Beginnings the book of Genesis. And for those that have been along with us in this journey, I hope that you've enjoyed it thus far. That's increased your love for God and for his word. And we're currently in the season, in the section of scripture, taking a look at the life of Jacob, who we were introduced to back in chapter 25, with his birth alongside his twin brother Esau. And in Genesis chapters 30 to 32, we see that God is preparing Jacob to trust in him and to acknowledge him as God alone. Jacob is listed alongside a list of other very significant people in Scripture, which commonly known as the Hall of Faith. Uh, you can read about those individuals in Hebrews chapter 11. And the life of Jacob that's been recorded by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has captured aspects of his life 
recorded for us in order that we should learn from them. Some of these aspects that we are to learn are from those that we should not repeat, as those things con- there are those things that are contrary to God, but there are also those things in which we should apply our lives to, so that we in turn would live lives of obedience through faith by the work of Jesus Christ. And the life of Jacob, as well as all of Scripture, points to the loving workings of our God, despite us, as Joe's preach was a couple weeks ago, despite us, God. And this narrative shows God's faithfulness. It's that Hebrew word chesed, his steadfast, faithful, covenantal love, despite the lack of complete obedience in the life of Jacob. So what I like to do is read through the chapter. It's only 20 verses long. And then we'll take a slow walk through the rest of the chapter to see the incredibleness and the wonderfulness of God's amazing word in order that we might be transformed into the children that he has called us to be. So Genesis chapter 33, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in your sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly. At the pace of the livestock, they're ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to you, to my Lord in Sair. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned on that day, on his way to Sair. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, and he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paran Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent 
there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. <coughs> so we start here in, very, in the very first part of verse 1. It starts with, and Jacob. At this point in the narrative, here in chapter 33, today the fraternal twins, they have not seen each other for 20 years. And our text begins telling us, and Jacob. Very rather interesting way to start the chapter, but it seems better for us to back up two verses, back into chapter 32, verses 31 to 32, to give us a little bit of context to what's going on. The sun rose upon him, upon Jacob, as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. So Jacob, having the wrestling match of all time, that was recorded in the previous chapter, obtained a blessing which resulted in a new name and which resulted in Jacob naming the place of that wrestling match Penuel, for Jacob had seen the very face of God and did not die. So here in verse 1, isn't this the same man whose name was just changed to Israel, meaning one who strives with God? Why then is he called Jacob still? It seems that there are some character traits that need to be dealt with within Jacob. Despite his overwhelming experience with God along the Jabbok River, in which that experience didn't change him instantaneously, this chapter points to a couple things that relates not only to the life of Jacob and his character development, but also the process in which God refines each one of us those that have called upon his name as Lord and Savior. And this lifelong process is called sanctification. This process, which is not solely relegated to operate within the confines of these four walls on any given Sunday, but it's a process that we should be being part of daily. It's a lifelong process. A process in which we need to be dependent upon him not doing things on our own strength, nor developing our own plans apart from him, but solely to re re rely upon God, diligently seeking him, and asking him to show us what he is doing, and showing us how we fit into that plan that he has had set in motion prior to the foundations of the earth. Verse 1 continues on, it says, And Jacob, lifting up his eyes, he sees his twin brother, whom he has not seen for 20 years. Recall after Jacob had taken the birthright of Esau. Scripture gives us insight in the heart attitude from Esau when he realized what had just taken place. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 20 years ago, the last words recorded from Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, were, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. This attitude caused Jacob to flee, to leave his father and mother and the promised land, and he was gone for 20 years. So as Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees his twin brother, and he recalls the hatred for his brothers had towards him, and he sees the 400 men that are with him, Jacob just doesn't stop there and seek the Lord. There's no record of his prayer. It's just recorded that he goes right into planning mode. But we do have to recall that Jacob did pray prior to this. 
after he sent messengers to relay to his brother that he is nearby, he is in the country, only to get word back that Esau is now underway with a very large group of men. And so Jacob seeks the Lord in prayer in verse chapter 32, 11. Prior his name change, Jacob asks God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. In Jacob's prayer, though, he does recall a promise that God had given him. Jacob says, but you said, I will surely do you good. Make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's interesting to note here the similarities of the reactions of perceived trouble and the potential death that both his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac had. Both of them feared for their lives, despite both of them having a promise from God that he would take care of them and to make them into a great nation. Yet despite the same type of promise from God that he was going to make them into a great nation, Jacob seems to display this very same type of fear. So despite the perfect, holy, trustworthy words of God given to Jacob, despite these, he divides his children and women up. He goes on into full planning mode. There's no pause again. No, there's no record of a pause. No record of him seeking the Lord as to what he should do. And so as he divides his children up, it would be good for us to recall what is all taking place here with these families. So I get to use a nice pointer. I know that's not very large. I apologize for that. But what we have is the women and the children. His women, the women are his wife Leah and his other wife Rachel. They both have servants, Zilpah and Bilhah. Each of these have bore children to Jacob. Reuben through Leah, Simeon, and Levi. Bilhah had Dan, the servant of Rachel, and Judah. Next was Naphtali. Gad, Zilpah, the servant of Leah and Asher. Hi, Asher. <laughs> and Issachar, son of Leah, and Zebulun, and Dina. And then finally, Joseph is with Rachel. So this gives us the view of whose kids are with who in this, in this narrative. And so, this, so if there's any faith in Jacob, in the words that God had spoken to him, if there's any faith in the God that touched his hip and gave him a limp forever, if there was any faith in the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, we might have seen a different set of events rather than what's recorded here in chapter 33. But all of this is indeed part of God's plan. All of his plan of refining to make Jacob more into his image. God has promised us that he will always be with us. Not necessarily always remove us from the situations that we're in or the situations that we've put ourselves in. But in each situation that we encounter, we should be seeking the Lord for wisdom. As our good Father will grant wisdom for those that seek it. So in verse 2, Jacob says, He puts the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Notice what it says here in verse 3. The scripture is making it very clear who is in, in lead here. He himself. He's taking the lead. There's, there's, we're beginning now to see a, a transformation in Jacob after his encounter with the Lord. Notice that there's this 
interesting phrase about him bowing seven times. Uh, there, there's been some archaeological evidence from these uh, tablets of Armea that they found in record of these um, accounts of people coming in to see Pharaoh. And what it was is they would bow seven times. It's acknowledgement of royalty, acknowledgement of a superior. And here we see Jacob doing this seven times. It would have been something people would have been familiar with, not just uh, something we have no idea. Uh, because we don't do that today, do we? <laughs> but it, is such, uh, it shows such an irony uh, in this situation. Because if we recall what the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. But now in this scene, it's the reverse is taking place. Jacob had just been with God, who has given him these promises as now prostrating himself in front of his brother. Jacob is not living in the truth of who God called him to be. The brother of Jesus, James, advises us that all, that all of us should be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. There must come a point in our walk with the Lord in which we live out the truths of our real identity as children of the living God. Not just hoping for the next experience with God, but on continued daily living our lives that reflect the kingdom that we are a part of. And so we see here that Jacob is now limping out ahead of his family, and we read in verse 4, But Esau, if we had not read ahead, we most likely would expect to see Esau full of anger and hatred along with his 400 men ready to respond to his brother. And scripture captures this intensity in a rapid succession. There's a whole bunch of verbs that we get here. It says there's running and there's a met and they embraced and they kissed and they wept, but not the type of response that we would anticipate. And Esau, he runs to Jacob. That would have been unheard of. It would have been unnatural to see for a man to pick up his cloak and start running. The only other thing you could anticipate is possibly conflict. Whereas Jacob, of course, can only limp. And he runs and he met Jacob. And they embraced. Not in a wrestling match to the death. But Esau affectionately grabs hold of the heel grabber. And falls upon his neck. Literally, he threw his arms around him. Kissed him. And then the plural is that they then, they both wept. It's a beautiful scene, echoing very same language that's used in the blessing that Jacob received from his father Isaac, the blessing that was supposed to go to the firstborn. And this is a very different type of response, I'm sure, that we would have expected if we had been there and seen it all take place, knowing the attitude that we had heard about Esau and his hatred towards his brother, but God gives us this response, as this truly is the type of lifestyle that he desires from each of us. Esau's response to his brother is the heart response of the father. And could it be that this is the sign, the scene that Jesus alludes to with the prodigal son? When the son, when he's in the pigsty, realizes and comes to his wits and realizes where he's at, 
saying, I need to return to the Father. And when he returns to the Father, it says in Luke 15, 20, says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What is a bit sad is that even though this interaction between the twins takes place, it does point to reconciliation, but it's sad that the children of Esau, the Edomites, his descendants, will not continue in this type of relationship with the children of Israel. Edom, we know, wages war on Israel, and there will be judgment upon them, and that's what that very small book of Obadiah is all about. Where God, in his chesed, his steadfast, faithful love, gives the Edomites a chance to repent, but ultimately they don't. But he has such patience for them and hoping that they would repent. Obadiah says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. But what we see in Esau's response is a type of response and relationship God desires of us towards one another. In verse 5, it says, And when Esau lifted up his eyes, he saw the women and the children, and he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice the precise word choice of Jacob. He doesn't say that these are the children of the blessing to possibly invoke the anger of his twin brother that God has graciously given to him. And these children, like I said before, will become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 children of Israel. Verses 6 and 7. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. And likewise, her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. So the next slide, in slide number two, we don't know the exact order of when the servants of Rachel and Leah were, but we have Bilhah and Zilpha with their two children, setting ahead, and they each are bowing down in front of Esau. Leah then shows up with her children, and last, notice the word order, Joseph and Rachel. It's the favored son. His name is the only one that's mentioned as he is mentioned before his mother in this. And they each bow down in front of Esau. And Esau says in verse 8, and Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of the Lord. What do you mean by all this company that I met? These are the droves that get set ahead of him the day before. Uh, if you read from the English Standard Version, as I'm reading from, it provides a footnote for the word company, meaning camp. Esau is referring to the first camp that Jacob had set up in his planning prior to meeting his twin brother. Oh, the irony. (laughs) If you recall, Jacob, the reason for splitting his one camp into two, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will be able to escape. The first camp was those sent of 550 animals. 490 of them were female, and these were all sent as a gift to appease Esau, to earn his grace in case his brother was still in a fit of rage. But, as we have just seen, Esau has not expressed that hatred that we had anticipated, even after 20 years. In verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau says, I have plenty. Which is interesting to note, because what is the blessing that Esau received from Isaac? 
back in chapter 27, Isaac blessed Esau, saying, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. But what we see here is that Esau does indeed have worldly possessions. All that the world has to offer. He has 400 men, which alludes to the fact that he has probably a very large group in his tribe. Again, if you recall that Abraham, when he went to rescue his nephew, had only 318 men. Esau's got 400, again, acknowledging the large group that he has now attained. And notice here in chapter 9 that Esau is now called Jacob, his brother. He is acknowledging him as his blood relative. But Jacob, on the other hand, refers to Esau continually as his Lord and refers to him as his servant. Jacob says in verse 10, No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. If I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. This is a direct answer of prayer of Jacob. Remember in Genesis 32, 11 says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me in the mothers of the children. One question that we should ask when we look at this, this answer of prayer directly in Scripture is, how specific are you when you pray? And when your specific prayer is answered, how do you express your thanks to the God of the universe who heard you and answered your request? Because just like any parent, when a child responds with thankfulness, it brings joy to us. How much more so would it bring joy to our Heavenly Father when we express our thanks and gratitude towards Him? If we are not specific in our prayers, it does make it a bit more difficult to experience and see the answer. For as our Heavenly Father is great, so great, let us boldly come to Him with our specific requests and then be on the lookout for the answers that when we gather together as a household of faith, that we can give glory to God as we hear how God is moving in each of our lives to encourage one another, to strengthen us in our faith, and ultimately to give glory to our good, good Father. But what we don't have here in this record is Jacob glorifying God for the answer to his prayer. I mean, his life was just spared. Not only that, but his entire family was spared. Not from any of his planning or scheming, but because the Lord promised that he would keep him safe. The second half of the verse says, For I have seen your face. Jacob is talking to his brother. Which is like seeing in the face of God. And you have accepted me. Recall when Jacob wrestled with God, he saw the face of God and he didn't die. And now he has seen the face of his brother and he didn't die. <laughs> verse 11, Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Even though I've stolen your blessing from you, God has dealt graciously with me. So please take this gift because of the blessing that I took from you after you forsook your birthright. Let me now bless you. What's interesting is that during this time period of the patriarchs, as it relates to presenting gifts from one party to another, it meant one of two things. One is either proof of friendship, or two, it proved reconciliation, as in giving a gift to an enemy, or by an enemy. And if they were not received, then it means that there's no friendship, that there's no reconciliation. 
Yet, by the actions of Esau thus far, it seems to indicate that there is a change in his attitude towards his twin. As from the text, it doesn't appear that there's any animosity. So if he rejects them, he, in an essence, is stating there's no friendship between us, and there's no reconciliation. But Jacob urged him, and Esau took it. How has God dealt graciously with you? We should be thanking him today for dealing graciously with us. That's the greatest gift of grace that God has bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. Because of that great gift, how much should we offer our love towards one another in response? How much of ourselves should we offer to God in response? Which is also a bit sad and interesting, too, is to note, why didn't Jacob go into detail about his meeting with the one true living God when he met Esau? It's hard to imagine why Jacob didn't give Esau all the details with the time spent with Laban and his family growing and the stuff with the goats and the sheep and all the stuff that's heading on. They didn't explain any of this. There's no record of it. Again, I think it's pointing to us that we need to be sharing the testimony that all of us have to bring glory to the Lord, to share, be confident in what God has done in you and within you. By sharing what God has done in your life and with others, it will bring our Father great joy. Verses 12 to 14 says, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Sayir. Here again, another glimpse of Jacob's character. I mean, his children have already made the journey thus far. Who really is the frail one at this point? It's the one with the limp. But yet, again, he is not living out his true identity. He's not living as Israel. He's not fully taking on that new identity that God gave him. And for us, this response, this should be a sober reminder of how we live our lives. Do we just go about giving God verbal acknowledgement and then go about our daily lives and not reflect our true identity as citizens of heaven? This is what we all need to strive for each and every day. This is what Jesus has called us to when he said to pick up our cross, to deny the desires of the flesh, and to continually abide in him. Notice, too, in, in, verse, uh, in this section, that this is the last reference, one of nine, that mentions children in our passage. Again, it's a reminder of, uh, of the importance of these children. Again, these are the children of the promise. These are the children of Israel, chosen and kept by the grace of God. So Esau said in verse 15, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. This is the last recorded conversation in scripture between Jacob and his brother Esau. They will be seen together again, but it's at the burial of their father, Isaac, on a couple of chapters ahead. In verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Sair. Why didn't Jacob go down to Sair? Unfortunately, our text doesn't state the fact. It could be that Jacob did remember the words God gave him 
as well as to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, to return to the land that I promised you. Genesis 31.3 says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. If we read ahead, we do find another reason why Jacob didn't go with his brother. Because in chapter 36, we're told that they split up due to their possessions were too great to be able to dwell together. And as I mentioned before, Sair, this is where the Edomites dwelt. And it seems that it is by the grace of God that Jacob didn't go and join Esau and head south with him. God didn't allow the potential mingling of these peoples. Again, the descendants of Esau had perpetual enmity for the children of Esau. And because of this, God will deal with them for their disobedience. But that is a very long time from our current text. But again, it just shows God's long-suffering to those who are made in his image. And in his long-suffering, though, he will fulfill his justice. And he will fulfill his holiness. The prophet Ezekiel says in the last days in Ezekiel 35, 15, as you rejoice over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I'll deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Sair, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore the name of the place is called Sukkot. But Jacob, instead of heading south, turns northwest and heads to a city within the Jordan Valley, to Sukkot. Sukkot means booths. Notice that the triad use of this word, Sukkot, Sukkot, Sukkot. God's calling some attention to this. Could it very well be that as he's presenting to Esau his gifts for acceptance and allowing to see God's favor points maybe to the Day of Atonement, which precedes the Festival of Booths, which is also known as Sukkot, where God dwells with us. Could it be? We don't know. It seems interesting, though, in one verse we've got three mentions of the word Sukkot. But did God tell Jacob that he is the God of Sukkot? Then why did he build a house there and booths for his livestock as if he was planning to stay for a while? Scholars estimate that Jacob was here at Sukkot for at least a couple of years. Hence the fact the word is actually used for he built a house. He didn't pitch a tent. He built a house outside of the promised land. Again, God had met Jacob in Bethel. That is where Jacob made his vow to God. In Genesis 28, that is where he was supposed to go. Genesis 28, 20 to 22 says, And Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. There are things in our life there are many things <laughs> not essentially sinful which become sinful under particular circumstances. And so for whatever reason, Jacob didn't follow the words of God and go back to that place in Bethel, staying outside of the promised land. It was quite possibly justifying it, the need for, I need to take care for my flocks. But Jacob is heading in the right direction, but even in his heading in the right direction, He's delaying his obedience. 
delaying or delayed obedience for whatever reason does not give glory to our God. This example of Jacob should cause us to continually ask the Holy Spirit for guidance to help us grasp this. Our full and complete obedience needs to flow out of our faith in him, not out of obligation, but because of who he is. If he truly is our God, he deserves everything. But God, in his grace and his mercy, allows Jacob to do this. But he will not allow him to sit in disobedience for very long. For God revealed himself as the God of Bethel. And in fact, later on, after a time of God refining Jacob into his image, he will tell Jacob again where he used to go. Go to Bethel. In verse 18, it says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padam Aran, and he camped before the city. Shechem. Again, he's heading in the right direction, but this isn't the place that God has called Jacob to come to. This is not the land of his fathers. This ultimately, in Shechem, will become the land of the Samaritans, who further on down the road, we know, in redemptive history, have some strife with the children of Israel. And again, we are seeing Jacob in incomplete obedience. He's heading in the right direction, but not fully. Brothers and sisters, it is never truly a safe thing to be living in partial obedience. We are called to live out our lives in complete surrender to our Lord. Not just to have one foot in the world and the other in the kingdom. But we can only do this, not in our own strength, but only if we completely surrender ourselves to the Father and ask Him that He gives us the strength to do what He has called us to do. So what does Jacob do next in our narrative? In verse 19, from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. We don't have any idea what the value of the word that's used for a hundred pieces of money. But nevertheless, Jacob is now a proud owner of property. Hence done with his word of saying he bought them in the, in the place of Hamar. Not for a temporary not for a temporary dwelling place. But again, why? Why gain a small portion of land when you've been promised the entirety? It seems to point to another lack of his faith, evident through his lack of obedience to go to Bethel. Recall when Abraham came here, it was just called the place of Shechem. There's no city that appeared here yet. And so by the time Jacob arrives, he pitches his tent outside the city, purchases a property, which, as we read further on, you get to Joshua chapter 24, it turns into the burial ground of his favored son, Joseph. But if only, if only Jacob had had the same faith as his grandfather Abraham, he never would have purchased even a square inch of the land. Verse 20 says, there he, Jacob, erected an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. This altar that he sets up or erects is indicative of the condition of Jacob. For he calls it God, the God of Israel. And it seems to present such a limited view. This is Jacob's way of, of attempting to deal with his disobedience. God, I'll consecrate something to you. 
This is not to be done here at Shechem. This should have been in Bethel, where God told them to go. Sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. The Lord will not be done with any of us. Praise Him. (laughs) He will always be our sustainer, our hope, and our God. And what He asks each of us is obedience in our relationship to Him. Our obedience to Him, it needs to be part of every single aspect of our lives and not to be separated in any manner. We need to, and I'm speaking to myself as well, need to continually strive for living as citizens of heaven. Not just on Sunday mornings. Not just the time that we pray. Not just the time that we read our Bible. But that the aspect of being a kingdom dweller exudes from us every hour and every day. Oh Lord, we need you. Just as the song goes, every hour I need you. And this is the call to continually abide in Christ every day, to be watchful lest we do the same as Jacob, to perform our spiritual duty and then fall in line of the world the rest of the week. But we have on our side one who is tempted in every way, who acts as our advocate to the Father, interceding for us as a high priest, the risen King, Jesus Christ. And within this truth, we are called to live in obedience, in faith through the power, the working of Jesus Christ. Our battle against temptations to sin is a battle that is worth truly fighting for, in which it can only be done in complete surrender to Jesus Christ. He is the one that is knocking at the door of your soul. He is wanting and desiring access into the intimate recesses of your heart. Like Jacob, when he fell back onto his natural tendencies, trusting in his own plan, showing favoritism and being deceitful, we should be aware of our own tendencies, those things that we turn to when things get difficult. Is it unforgiveness? What sort of things do you do when, we, when you get stressed or angry? What sorts of things are you doing, conscience or not, that would entail delayed obedience? I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify those things. As David cried out in the psalm, Seek me, O Lord. Reveal those things in my heart that are against your plan. Because we want to fully and completely follow in obedience through faith. This text in chapter 33 is here to guide us, as well as all Scripture. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this good work, it's not to earn the favor of God or to earn our salvation, but it's to help us not to fluctuate as we daily live our lives as citizens of heaven. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we will sin. For we will continually to have sin around us up until that point in which we step into the presence of God and we become glorified and freed from the very presence of sin. But we're here now. (laughs) And we are called to put to death 
the life that we had prior to accepting Jesus, to walk in obedience of the new life that's been given to us through Jesus. But when we sin, I encourage you to call immediately upon the name of Jesus. Run to him. Don't hide. Meet him in prayer. Embrace him. Allow yourselves to be completely vulnerable to him and ask him for forgiveness. And he will completely and absolutely forgive you. For our God is greater. He has defeated both sin and death, and he is our good, good father, the one who wraps himself in light. The one who is always there, who loves beyond measure. And so come to him continually. Seek his face. So in closing, our prayer is that we would all, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 If you can please stand.